0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, back in Washington, D.C.
1: And I am your co-host, Katie Putts, also in Washington, D.C.
0: Hey, Katie, it's good to be back. I know we took a little bit of an extended summer break, uh, but uh, I'm sure our listeners are ready for a little discussion, so uh, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, summer has hit here in Washington and elsewhere in the uh, Northern Hemisphere, I guess, but uh, yeah, plenty to discuss
0: absolutely actually so i was i was just on vacation for a little bit and i i left dc the day that uh indian prime minister narendra modi came to town and that's actually what we'll talk about today because it's it's definitely i think um the summit that happened between modi and biden or rather the state visit i should say Uh, is, I think, an important moment uh, in the U.S.-India relationship, which we've repeatedly covered on this podcast over over the years. But I don't think we've actually done a dedicated U.S.-India episode uh, in several months now. So this seems like a good moment to kind of take stock of what happened, what's driving uh, the U.S.-India relationship at this particular moment in time, um, and how the two countries really see each other uh, in this uh, rapidly changing geopolitical context in Asia and globally. Uh, So, I think the place to begin is maybe just a quick kind of rundown of well, not everything that happened because there was certainly a lot from, uh, you know, a joint address to Congress to a whole range of deliverables. But basically I think Katie, if I had to sum up the let's say the three banner kind of headings for the 2023 U S India state visit or, or Modi state visit to Washington, I'd say the banner headlines here are technology, defense, And kind of the way, I don't know the right way to maybe say this, but, you know, people to people ties, uh, U.S.-India relations more more broadly kind of expanding. I think this is part of a process, of course, of U.S.-India convergence that has now been ongoing for Depending on the date you want to backdate it to I would say about two decades. Uh, This is there's been pretty consistent uh, support for the US India relationship across administrations and the Biden administration has really been no exception there. Um, On technology, uh, I think, you know, there's there were sort of um, deliverables on semiconductors, which have been a major priority for the Biden administration, setting up new assembly and test facilities in India. Uh, Micron technology in particular is is establishing a new center that was announced out of the visit. There's a new partnership on critical minerals. Um, The, uh, you know, India joined up to the mineral security partnership which uh, is, again, I think, an attempt by the United States to uh, ensure that New Delhi is looped into that important strategic U.S. initiative. Uh, There's a lot on telecommunications, on space. Uh, India signed the Artemis Accords, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, We won't go into that in too much detail, Uh, but certainly um, India joining Artemis is a pretty significant uh, development. It becomes the 27th country, I believe, to join that uh, initiative uh, which is led by uh, nasa in the united states Uh, there were a couple deliverables on quantum on other forms of innovation kind of following up on the initiative on critical and emerging technologies that the two countries announced um, fairly recently Um, the big headline on defense of course uh, well there are two big headlines on defense uh, the first one, which I think is really the crystallization of the U.S.-India Major Defense Partnership, which was announced at the end of the Obama administration in 2016, uh, is the fact that India will be producing or co-producing with the United States uh, General Electric uh, General Electric F-414 fighter jet engines, including uh, engines that will power uh, Indian fighter aircraft built by Hindustan Aeronautics Limited. Uh, that's a really big deal. Uh, it's, I think the kind of cooperation that India has been hoping to uh, capitalize on. And the other big defense headline, of course, is that the two countries finalized a deal for the provision of General Atomics, uh, MQ-9B, armed um, Sea Guardian UAVs, uh, which is also a deal that's been pending for some time. So let me stop there. You know, I've kind of talked through, Katie, a little bit of... The deliverables, the big banner headlines, you know, this is a continuation of a long-running trend of convergence between the two countries. But, of course, the U.S.-India relationship, I think, uh, has raised questions, right? I mean, you've seen a lot of commentary, including in The Diplomat, about the divergence in values between the two countries, right? Uh, U.S. US officials, of course, don't... uh, refer to this directly, where India is touted as the world's largest democracy and an important US partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, But increasingly, there is a divergence in values. Uh, There's, of course, uh, widespread questioning of India's democratic credentials. I thought maybe you could kind of reflect a little bit on that, because I think that's an important component of this visit. We had kind of several members of Congress uh, decline to attend Modi's joint address. Um, I think the significance of this overall is still quite limited on the broader strategic trajectory of the relationship, but I do think it deserves to be addressed. So what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think your outline was very good in sort of identifying the technology and the defense aspects uh, that came out of this summit. And then there was sort of that third area you identified, which is the more softer like relationship between India and, and the U.S. and Indian people and, and American people um, that was very much highlighted you know, I think one of the interesting things is in the, the weeks ahead of the visit, you know, as sort of commentators in The Diplomat, as you noted, and elsewhere, sort of pointed out um, the sort of, you know, ideological friction or, or just um, values friction where you have sort of the reality in India, um, particularly for Muslims, but there's also issues with press freedoms in India Um contrasted with this idea of India as a, a great democracy. Uh, you know, no democracy is perfect, uh, including ours, but but I, I think there is definitely some tension there. Um, but in the weeks ahead of the visit, you know, various US officials sort of stressed that, of course, Biden would address uh, these concerns about human rights issues privately with Modi, um, but, but wouldn't lecture India about these issues. And so there's, I, I think there's a very careful line being trod between raising these kinds of issues in a private manner and maybe trying to deepen that personal relationship between Biden and Modi um, in, in hopes of maybe nudging some of those issues. I don't know if that's going to be successful, um, but there's this overarching strategic necessity of the relationship with India. Um, and I think we see this time and again with, with sort of American values-led diplomacy, often taking a backseat to strategic and sort of these realist uh, necessities. Uh, and so so I think we very much see that, you know, we did not see Biden lecturing uh, India about press freedoms. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I think and, and maybe one interesting sort of uh, similarity between the two is both Biden and Modi don't really do a lot of press conferences. Uh, they don't really take questions from the press. So maybe they maybe they get along a little bit better uh, in having that that sort of approach. Um, But I I think it's 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 worth remarking on because, you know, even in the joint statement, for example, it's heavily stressed repeatedly that, you know, this is, quote, a partnership of democracies looking into the 21st century with hope, ambition and confidence. Uh, If that's built on sort of a false premise that India is is as democratic as the United States or its democracy is as advanced as the United States, I don't I don't know how long that can go before it gets a little bit absurd. Yeah. I mean, you know,
0: the Biden administration, I think, has been getting some flack for this, um, given that, you know, this is the administration that came in right after the Trump administration after January 6th in the United States, emphasized restoring democracy, building back better, holding a democracy summit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also in the national security strategy that the administration released, uh, you know, it's quite frank. The NSS says that the U.S. will cooperate where, where needed with non-democracies and other countries where it advances U.S. Mm-hmm. interests. And I think India, you know, of course, you know, everything that we've been talking about, the U.S. treats India as if it is, uh, largely speaking, a democracy without the kinds of flaws that commentators have been talking about. But I think even even through that frame, I think that broadly justifies why the administration, I think, continues to approach India as it does. Um, apart from that, I mean, you know, there's, of course, uh, the China factor, right, which is, I think, looming over this entire state visit. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've of course covered um, the uh, precipitous decline in India-China relations since uh, violence along their disputed border in the Himalayas, in uh, particularly in June 2020, when uh, the violence escalated into um, armed hostilities that resulted in um, direct casualties and fa- and fatalities for the first time uh, in uh, in. Uh, for the first time in several decades. And, and now we're in a position where I think um, the Biden administration takes the old U.S. kind of strategic bet view towards India, that even if India will never be a formal U.S. treaty ally or fully in line with U.S. interests across the board. Right. I mean, that's, again, worth pointing out that India's relationship with Vladimir Putin's Russia uh, has been a constant kind of vexing factor since the war in Ukraine began. But despite those divergences, despite the lack of a formal alliance, um, the U.S. has essentially made a strategic bet that a stronger, better equipped, more prosperous India is an inherent good for the United States in the Indo-Pacific, uh, in insofar as it gives China something else to concern itself with. And... And to the extent that India can directly offset China in an important way, Uh, even if, you know, Indian naval ships and aircraft aren't going to be showing up to a conflict on the Korean Peninsula or the Taiwan Strait, the U.S. still sees uh, India as an important bulwark for whatever you want to call it, the free and open Indo-Pacific. And I think that's very much at play here. Uh, You know, Kurt Campbell, Mm -hmm. uh, the president's uh, Indo-Pacific affairs um, advisor at the National Security Council, termed the U.S.-India relationship the most important for the United States, uh, which is really kind of a stark assessment when you think about it, given that, you know, this is a country that's not actually a formal treaty ally, uh, whereas the U.S., of course, you know, has allies in NATO and Japan and South Korea that um, it, you know, often uses very similar language to. But there's there's certainly, I think, folks in the administration who do see India as an absolutely essential country. but of course, you know, the uh, the constant debate that's been playing out in the opinion pages, again, including at The Diplomat, is the extent to which um, this strategic bet will actually pay off for the United States when it's most needed, right? And so will India um, ever be, you know, willing to devote military assets to a campaign in the Taiwan Strait, right? Probably not, given everything we've seen so far, but, you know... A, Will this relationship still pay dividends for the United States? I think that's going to be a continuing debate uh, and conversation um, going forward. I think, Katie, it would be useful if we could talk a little bit, actually, about what happened right after this summit, which was uh, not something that really made huge headlines in the United States, but was, of course, the SEO summit meeting, uh, which uh, India was was leading this time. And I thought I'd turn it over to you, because I know you spent a lot of time uh, thinking about uh, the SEO uh, in particular, uh, you know, what do we what do we take away from that well, when it comes to kind of India's particular role in Asia more broadly outside of the so-called, you know, team Indo-Pacific stuff with the United States? India certainly continues to be omni-aligned in many ways. And I think the SEO summit was an important reminder of that.
1: Yeah, so the SEO summit was particularly uh, interesting this year for how absolutely uh... Sort of overlooked it was, uh, and 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 I I have a feeling that that was almost on purpose on the part of India. So for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, has a long history, which I am not going to totally recount. But India and Pakistan joined this at the same time in 2017. Uh, this was India's first summit uh, as a member of uh, hosting a summit as a member of the SCO. Uh, and it was initially supposed to be held in person, uh, but back in May, so a little bit, uh, about a month and a half before the summit, India said it's going to be virtual. Uh, and so this summit took place entirely virtually, um, which is is a reversion. You know, the 2020 summit was held virtually because uh, of the COVID pandemic. 2021 was in Dushanbe, I believe, and it was uh, some people were in person, some people were virtual. And then last year, the summit was hosted by Uzbekistan and Samarkand, and that was entirely in person. Um, And that the fact that India then sort of went back to this virtual format, uh, I think speaks pretty loudly, there are a couple of lines of thought on why uh, India, India, of course, did not actually say why it decided to pursue a virtual summit. Um, There's sort of the, the first thing many people think of is uh, the, uh, what's the best way to put this? The uh, optics of inviting Vladimir Putin to the country. Now India is not a member of the ICC, so they're not obligated to arrest Vladimir Putin, even because there's a, an arrest warrant out for the guy. Uh, they're not, but there is an optical problem with bringing Putin and having that one-on-one with Modi and all of that. So going virtual sort of eschews doing that. But more importantly, there were questions about whether Xi Jinping would come, about whether Shabazz Sharif would come, whether the Chinese and the Pakistani leaders would um, want to come to India for this summit and, and would engage. Uh, and so ultimately they held it virtually. You know, they, the summit concluded with its usual joint statement, um, but as, as also has become habit, although most of the statement reads, you know, the members all agree on whole litany of things when it comes to the bri and endorsing the bri india leaves itself out uh and so that's a kind of an interesting thing for for a Mm -hmm. summit conclusion to sort of leave leave one of the members out um but there's there's plenty to talk about there but i think for our purposes here the difference in profile between modi's visit to the united states and then this summit in in which which was supposed to take place in india but took place on the internet um i think that that Tells us a little bit something about where India is positioning itself. It's not fully withdrawing from these engagements with Russia and China, but it's not wholly comfortable in them either. At least that's sort of the judgment I've come away with. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts about, about that?
0: Yeah. No. I was just going to say. I mean, I think. I think. I. I agree with that assessment, right? I mean, I use the term omni-alignment to kind of describe India's broader approach. I think. I think. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. While that's still true, in the sense that India is a country that certainly. Uh, is willing to engage kind of, uh, you know, both, oh, I guess, all sides of the current geopolitical divergences, uh, you know, uh, insofar as at least the Russia-US divide is concerned. Um, I, think, I think India, you know, has effectively decided that closer cooperation with the United States, where it suits India's interests, uh, you know, will be pursued in a energetic and kind of full-throated way. And I think that's what we really take away from this summit, right? um it's mm-hmm. it, you know there's no doubt that the US and India have their differences but i think there was a conscious effort at the summit for both sides uh to kind of make sure that that wasn't really the emphasis right um i think i think uh, uh, both biden and modi uh, their staff uh, kind of leading leading up to this summit made sure that the optics would be on the broader strategic convergence of interests that exists between the two countries um when it comes to china when it comes to um, other issues, even while differences will persist. Uh, but I think that SEO um, observation you made is 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 right on. Right, India, India is not going anywhere. They will continue to engage um, with Central Asia, which you know is also another priority for India. India has a policy of um, for its own interests. Um, connecting itself more closely with Central Asia. That's a policy that predates, um, you know, the fall of the Afghan government to the Taliban. It's been something that the Indian Mm -hmm. government's been working on for a couple decades. So there's a lot at work there, um, but I think that that kind of, you know, sums things up uh, nicely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the last reflection I'll make on the SEO is that, you know, although I still think the plurality and the reason this SEO existed was Central Asia. Uh, The the organization continues to grow and sort of contains multitudes. Uh, Iran joined this year as an official member. Belarus is expected to join next year as an official member. And so it's really grown beyond Central Asia, um, which as a Central Asianist, I find uh, interesting and possibly problematic because it doesn't really address the issues in Central Asia anymore. It's, It's... kind of gotten, I think, a little bit unwieldy, Uh, but we will continue to watch and and hopefully learn um, what the heck's going on.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking of Central Asia, Katie, maybe we can give our listeners a preview of our next episode because you just were in the region and you've just come back. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, revisit some of your impressions and insights on Central Asia when we come back next week.
1: Yes, indeed. I just got back from Bishkek uh, and I'm very excited to talk about um, China, Russia, the United States in Central Asia because there's a lot going on and the EU, which always gets forgotten, but uh, probably shouldn't be.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, again, apologies to listeners for the protracted break, but, you know, summer happens and uh, we'll try to make up for it with a Um, better tempo at least uh, through the rest of July. But in the meantime, thanks as always for listening. Uh, If you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. We really do appreciate the feedback. Uh, And if you have suggestions for either me or Katie on anything you'd like us to cover on the podcast going forward, please do reach out to us, uh, social media, email. We'll be very happy to take that into consideration. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.